Congress has tried over the years to curb the role of money in politics, but it remains more important than ever, and politicians are raising more of it than they ever have. The Center for Responsive Politics estimates that politicians and advocacy groups spent $14 billion to support or oppose candidates in 2020. That's double what was spent during the 2016 presidential election cycle. And the political money game is changing. Small dollar fundraising is easy and pervasive, thanks to the internet. And the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision opened the floodgates for super PACs to raise unlimited sums for ads, though they can't coordinate with campaigns. Our guest today is Sheila Krumholtz, director of the Center for Responsive Politics, which tracks political money and advocates for curtailing its influence. She's worked at the center for 30 years and is here to provide the long view. Welcome to the show, Sheila. We appreciate you joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. So, Sheila, the big news this year was after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, a lot of companies said they were going to stop giving to Republican candidates. Some said they were going to stop giving to candidates in general. Do you think that's going to last? Uh, I, of course, can't uh, predict the future with <laughs> huge accuracy, but I, I would suggest that now is a time when we would not expect to see a huge amount of fundraising, uh, a lot of pressure applied to PACs to give. Uh, so I think corporate PACs are in, um, have a bit of a reprieve and are uh, perhaps taking advantage of this moment to make a statement, take a stand. I have to say... I personally um, would be surprised if uh, they continued to take the same stand a year from now when the primaries are ramping up and the candidates, the members of Congress, the party leadership is really out there kind of shaking the, the money trees, trying to raise funds for their campaigns and for their, their uh, parties. On the other hand, never say never because, you know, w- what do I know? I'm not, uh, I don't have a crystal ball and it is always possible that this could be a moment, a really kind of uh, pivotal moment where corporations do uh, continue to grow more vocal, uh, spurred by the public who want them to use their uh, resources, their influence to, um, to make a statement about uh, voting rights and other uh, issues um, uh, that kind of were sparked by the January 6th uh, insurrection. Yeah, I mean, we've heard that some companies are considering their campaign giving as it relates to state state politicians who, in some states, are passing these voting laws that restrict, in some ways, the ability to cast a vote. And it, it raises the question, because my impression is that typically corporations have given to whoever is in power, and sometimes they've given to both parties to try to make sure that they have an in with anyone who might be close to power. But there's a chance that that could change, that ideology could become more of a guiding force in campaign giving. There's always a chance. I think it would have to overcome a lot, right? We have this very entrenched system of corporate PACs, as you say, giving uh, very often down the line kind of to each party to ensure that they have an open door, 
a returned phone call uh, for their lobbyists who are trying to help them shape policy, especially on taxation regulation, uh, in ways that would help their bottom line, either for their company or their industry. So this is a long-established system of corporate involvement. Uh, I, I think it is just simply untrue that corporations are not used to being politically active. They absolutely are through their campaign donations and through lobbying at a minimum, also through corporate executives donations where they can give far in excess of what the PAC is allowed to give at times. Um, so I, I do think uh, uh, it is possible that um, uh, these corporations could um, really be uh, inspired by the recent events uh, or even events over the last uh, years, you know, even dating back to the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. It's not just voting rights uh, on the agenda, but lots of topics that have spurred public outcry and corporate perhaps rethinking of their place in not just uh, as corporate leaders, but in society, in a democracy. You know, uh, democracy has been an excellent environment for capitalism. And I think uh, it has, you know, served these corporations well, and it's a system they want to protect and to the degree that they see that democracy is at all embattled or threatened, um, an argument can be made, I think, that, that it um, would serve them well to uh, defend uh, key principles of, of our democracy. But the counter argument would be that uh, Republicans still control a lot of our government at the state level. Certainly, they did quite well in the last election. And then here in Washington, they are... They are um, hold a lot of seats in the House and the Senate. And politicians are pragmatic and want to be close to those in power, want to have their lobbyists get their calls returned. Corporations are pragmatic. They're not in this for, uh, you know, out of altruism or patriotism. Uh, They have a fiduciary responsibility to return a profit to their shareholders. And uh, this is the system many of them know and if whether or not they love it they they know how to work it successfully uh to their own advantage and if they were to stand down uh and and simply uh cease donations or cease to um, participate in the same ways that doesn't mean that their competitors will likewise uh stand down and so there is risk that uh if they choose to take a principled stand uh and and stop supporting members or candidates or parties that they think are not defending uh, democracy as they see it, or, or if they simply just stand down entirely, just kind of step out uh, and, and stop being as engaged in politics, they could run the risk that, you know, they'll simply be kind of on the outs and, and their competitors will take advantage of the opportunity to step in and step into their place. So I, I think there are a lot of risks um, and opportunities inherent, and much of it, I think, depends on where the public goes with this. Will the public, uh, you know, how, how long will the memory of January 6th burn bright in the, in the minds of the public? Will legislative changes, the likes of which we saw in Georgia, continue to roll out throughout the country at the state level? You know, judicial uh, uh, decisions, there are all kinds of factors that could come into play that could 
keep this issue roiling in the minds of the public and, and you know, effectively grow the public support for corporate involvement and, uh, and likewise grow the number of boycotts for companies that uh, continue to support members uh, or politicians that, um, that are involved in these, what are seen by some as anti-democratic actions. Okay. So let's take a step back and look at the importance of corporate giving to politicians. How important is it? I mean, versus contributions from individual people. Corporations make up 70% of the contributions overall, uh, you know, overwhelmingly. The PAC spending is, represents corporate corporations and individual uh, contributions, while small dollar donations are growing in number and as a portion of the overall spending, um, most of the money and um, uh, and especially for many members of Congress, most of the money is coming from large donations from individuals, often the executive class in America, uh, that are able to pad the donations their PACs make uh, with their own individual donations. And of course, the more uh, corporate executives, partners, uh, family members uh, you have that can give, the more you can give in excess of what uh, the PACs can give. A PAC can only give $10,000 in a typical election cycle, five for the um, for, for the primary, five for the general. Uh, so individuals can amass uh, large sums of money, and and overwhelmingly, uh, that is that represents a very affluent and and kind of corporate class. However, small individual donations are, as I say, making up a growing portion of that money, and uh, for certain members of Congress, for certain politicians. Uh, it can be, uh, you know, the majority of the money. That's not uh, an easy uh, path to follow. It's it's not every member who can uh, light a fire under massive numbers of individuals. Like in the past, we've seen with uh, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump. There are other sources, and uh, for Democrats who have eschewed uh, corporate PAC donations, many of them joining the No PAC Caucus. Um, you know, some of them are going to be able to make up that money from small individual donations. So there are alternatives. So you mentioned the the limits that are on PAC contributions by law and the limits that are on individual contributions that they can only give uh, several thousand dollars to a, to any particular candidate. Our listeners, I'm sure, have heard about super PACs, which can receive unlimited contributions as a result of the 2010 Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. How does the fundraising that goes on by candidates compare these days with the political money being spent by super PACs? Are super PACs becoming where the game is, or is it still a mix between the two? How would you define it? Yeah, uh, super PACs can indeed raise unlimited sums from any source, uh, and they uh, must still report those receipts and expenditures to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, but um, they have the, the the you know what's super about them is is their the lack of limits. 
including uh, money could come directly from corporate sources, uh, which was long seen as being uh, a dangerous thing that corporations have such vast resources uh, that, you know, it would amount to a corporate takeover if they were able to contribute directly to politics. These super PACs, however, cannot give directly to the candidates. You, so there, there isn't that director route, but they can raise and spend uh, unlimited sums uh, on behalf of or against a candidate uh, running independent expenditures. We see so many PACs, so many of these PACs uh, aligning on behalf of a single candidate. We call these single candidate super PACs that they amount to really an extension of the campaign. So they're able to take advantage of these new, the new latitude in, in the post-Citizens United uh, rules and collect money from anywhere in any amount and spend it in ways that really, um, you know, again, act as kind of just another pocket of the, the candidate. Uh, and uh, it could be spent all in favor of a candidate or all uh, in opposition to their opponent. Um, so all told in the last cycle, uh, nearly $647 million was spent by single candidate super PACs. Uh, this is out of $14 billion, <laughs> the total amount spent. Uh, so it might seem like a, a relatively small amount, but this money is um, especially uh, you know, raised uh, on behalf of uh, members of Congress and is spent very often these outside groups are targeting their money at the most competitive races. So it's not spent in every single race, but in those places where it's key to uh, hold the line or, or uh, pick up a seat. I would also point to the number of races where the outside groups are, are spending in excess of what the candidates themselves are spending. So in the 2020 cycle, there were 34 races where outside groups together spent more than all of the candidates combined. So these, these committees really do, uh, you know, carry a big stick. <laughs> it's been 20 years now since Congress passed the McCain-Feingold, Shays-Meehan campaign finance law. That was just one of many attempts over the years Congress has made to, to limit the role of money in politics. It bans soft money, which was unlimited contributions to political parties. Now, we're, we've just talked about how unlimited contributions are now going to these outside PACs. Can we say that McCain-Feingold was a failure? I think that some would say so, that it would be better for all of this unlimited money to be raised and spent by the parties, which are seen as more accountable than these independent, quasi-independent or nominally independent outside groups. Uh, on the other hand, uh, still others, or some of those would say, you know, with every reform comes potential deform that, that we uh, think we're fixing the system, but we're just changing it in, in a way that we can't anticipate what the net effect will be or the, the, the outcomes, you know, may not all be good. Um, so there's, uh, there's this kind of Murphy's law at work. Um, I, I, I do think that there is, uh, uh, you know, good points to be made on, 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 on all sides, but, you know, there, there is this will to uh, try to ensure that money is not, 
having undue influence over who gets elected, who can run even for office, and then ultimately what policies get passed. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think if we can have um, a, a continual conversation about this, it is to our benefit because there's no argument that private money uh, is the basis for our elections and, and long has been, always has been. And that private money also has the potential uh, for corruption. We, you know, people have gone to jail, and that's to some evidence that the system works. Um, that that when corruption is ferreted out, um, there are consequences. But I think people, left, right, and center, um, you know, everyday Americans also feel that uh, for too long, money has had too much influence, has skewed Washington politics, politicians away from the public good from the public interest and, and that Washington no longer represents them. And I think that's a piece anyway of the, um, the, the, the cynicism, the anger at Washington, uh, the hyper-partisanship, you know, it plays a role here too, but um, money certainly I think has an undeniable uh, uh, effect. And I worry that uh, even for us at Open Secrets, you know, we, we put out data information so that people can track where the money's coming from and going to. And our goal is that people will use it in their own engagement, not get cynical and frustrated and, and apathetic and disengaged, but to use this as one tool in their toolkit, one piece of information along with many others to help make good choices at the ballot box and beyond to, to get engaged. So money, you know, it takes money to wage a, an, a national uh, race uh, and uh, so we have to be clear-eyed about, you know, it's not going to be free. And there are, of course, going to be people lining up uh, willing to make contributions. And they may not have, uh, you know, the national interest at heart. Uh, but, but, you know, this is the price of our system. It's a, it's a privately funded system. And the price is that we all have to be vigilant and engaged. Given what you just said about, you know, the the influence of money in politics and how it can be corrupting. Uh, you also previously talked about how small dollar contributions are becoming more important, that Barack Obama reached out and got a lot of small contributions from regular Americans, and um, Donald Trump did the same. Bernie Sanders, that was a, a prime driver of his very strong candidacies in 2016 and 2020. And now we see Republican leaders in the House. I, I got a release this week from Kevin McCarthy, the, the House Minority Leader, saying that he has had record fundraising this quarter at a time when corporations aren't giving. Um, so, I mean, is that a bright spot, that regular Americans are becoming more important in the political fundraising game? I think it is uh, an undeniable good that more people are getting engaged. Um, you know, giving a contribution is evidence of engagement. And, and so we want uh, more people engaged, not less. Uh, some worry that the candidates that are most successful with garnering massive numbers of small donations are those that are most bombastic say the most outrageous things, the most extreme candidates. Um, and it's true that, that um, many of those at the top of the list garnering the largest portions of their money from small donations um, can be those that excel at making viral moments, you know, excel at, at using, uh, some would say manipulating social media 
but there are, uh, you know, also the party leadership, you know, kind of big names in politics. Uh, so it's not all bomb throwers. I just want to follow up on that point, Sheila. It's because some say this is changing the way Congress operates, that members arrive and the goal is not necessarily to be a great lawmaker, to to write compromises, to um, create legislation, but rather to become a celebrity and to raise lots of money because of your celebrity status. And we're seeing that in some ways. A lot of the, there are some younger members who, because of their celebrity status, are right at the top of the, the fundraising. We, you know, of course, on the Democratic side, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's raising gobs of money. Um, she's only in her second year in Congress. And you have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the new Georgia Republican, who's been thrown off her committees because she's um, she she previously had, had um, talked about some crazy conspiracy theories on social media, but this appeals to a segment of out there that is willing to actually write checks. Yes, and they, you know, might be there with or without act blue on the left and win red on the right. Uh, but another key element here is that technology has made it so much easier for people to uh, make an impulse donation or, or not even an impulsive donation, just to feel like I, I understand and support this person's policies. They represent me and my beliefs. I'm going to give them $5 a month or $10 a month. I, I can't give a lot, but I'm going to be able, among the massive numbers of people that are, uh, are going to um, uh, pull together uh, small amounts of money at a time to, to ultimately deliver massive <laughs> sums of money. Um, but, you know, the system has always had the, the brash, you know, candidates that um, kind of draw all the attention and the news stories or media. Um, it's it's uh, easier to do, um, maybe especially if a candidate is particularly extreme or particularly uh, adept at uh, leveraging social media. Uh, so it's it's nothing novel. We've we've long had uh, candidates that 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 are like this that um, draw attention. It's just easier for them now to capitalize on that and draw lots and lots of money. Um, and also, you know, just uh, society humans have grown more and more comfortable with making their financial transactions online. So even just in the last few years, uh, that has been, I think, an, uh, an important piece of this. Yeah, the Democrats are considering a, a legislation, they call it H.R. 1 in the House and S. 1 in the Senate, and indicating that it's their priority bill. And it would make some changes to the campaign finance system, one of which would be matching small-dollar contributions with public funds at a 6-to-1 rate. So if I donated $10 to a candidate, the government would chip in 60 how do you think that that would affect things? Do you think it's a good idea that would shift our system more in the direction of small dollar donor donors, or is there a risk that it could just further bolster the um, the the type of lawmaker that appeals to the donor? Yeah, um, I think this is there is a kind of hot debate going on about this right now. I think it's really interesting, and we um, 
should um, uh, consider seriously uh, whether we can replicate the success in these kinds of matching systems at the state and local level uh, on the national stage. So I'm not a scholar that studies this. Michael Malbin of the Campaign Finance Institute is, and he's worked with the Brennan Center uh, and others to f- look at different kind of um, formulas for, you know, if you vary the, the amount of money uh, in a match or how many, um, you know, how much money it takes to, to, to run a viable campaign with these matching systems. Uh, I think it's really interesting research and I think it, uh, it, it merits um, scrutiny and, and being taken seriously. It's a, it's a big lift. I mean, public funding at the national level doesn't have a great track record. There was public funding for presidential campaigns and it was just allowed to wither on the vine. I think it really wasn't given its, its due uh, uh, course or, you know, a, a, right. A the candidates try. are just, just turning it down now because they can raise <laughs> right, more, right. more so on their gone. own. It's, it's gone. But um, I think there is, uh, you know, it'd be terrific if um, we could, uh, uh, I, th- I think it would be healthy for democracy if uh, more people were engaged, including in donations, and uh, it were the, the campaign finance system were more representative. I, you know, does anybody think that uh, just you know it should be a billionaires' club? These are people who have huge interests before the federal government, and and so there's no question about the conflicts of interest inherent in a system that is so. Uh, privately funded by such a concentrated handful of of people and corporations and, and organizations, um, you know. But there are are um, maybe uh, risks or or uh, kind of uh, unappetizing uh, corollaries, like uh, having systems fund uh, the candidates who are best able to manipulate. Um, social media, you know, to, to use media to draw attention to extreme ideas. Um, I think it's always healthy to think and talk and debate how our system operates and how we can make it more systemically fair and representative. Okay, Sheila, this is CQ Future. So allow me to ask you for a prediction. I mean, we've just seen a presidential election where... Uh, fundraising, uh, the amount of money doubled from the, just the previous presidential election four years prior. Uh, where are we going from here? Is money going to continue to exponentially grow in our politics, or are politicians going to take some steps, or are the voters going to decide they don't want to give um, where that growth rate declines or or flattens out? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Great question. Um, I am going to come down on the side of 2020 being an extreme outlying cycle. That that doubling from seven billion in 2016 to 14 billion is not a sustainable uh, rate of growth. And it's probably foolish for me to say this because if you look at the the record over time, the money only goes up. In 2016, it barely went up because Trump was such an unorthodox candidate that a lot of the money sat on the sidelines until the very end. Um, and then in 2020, because he was fundraising from day one, the, in part, uh, in 2020, the, the money just skyrocketed. So I, I don't think that is a replicable uh, 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 
amount of money. I, I, I don't think that it will go north of there again um, uh, in, in the next presidential cycle, uh, or if it does, it will barely, um, because Trump was just such an unorthodox candidate. He, he was driving the money uh, for him and against him. And the voters too, and the number of people who came out to vote. Yes, yes. So huge engagement, huge money. Uh, without a Trump, uh, I am uh, dubious that it, this rate of growth can be sustained. Okay, interesting. Yeah, we're going to have to have you back in four years and see how <laughs> see how your prediction worked out. But Sheila, we appreciate you joining this show. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all our podcasts at rollcall.com. The producers of this show were Evan Campbell and Jillian Roberts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.